Hello, I'm the Pink Phantom, and this is my podcast. Join me as I delve into the world of games and gaming, and especially old school RPGs. Together, let's voyage into the astral realm and check out my Phantom Thought. In this episode, I've got calls from Daniel Norton of the Bandits Keep podcast and Media Empire, uh, Rich from the Cockatrice Nuggets podcast, and Jason of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Also have more events happening in the world of the Tales of the Dragon Slayers AD&D solo campaign I'm rolling, running. Uh, these the the Dragon Slayers content is going to be. I've had some episodes where I've just done mostly talking, not rolling much dice. I'm going to be rolling a lot of dice this time. A couple of different encounters, not as much story mixed in. I do explain kind of the circumstances of what's going on. And yeah, that's going to be the podcast for today. And we're going to start off with the first call from Daniel. Hey, Pink Phantom. Daniel from Bates keep calling in about the solo question. Uh, since I've been running a solo game for, I don't know, multiple months now and gotten the solo bug, <laughs> so to speak, you know, I thought I'd call in about this. I thought your answers were really good. And kind of, I just want to throw in my two cents for Hobbs. Maybe this will broaden the, the concept. For me, there's lots of different ways to enjoy these games. And I guess the, you know, the, the standard way, right, that people would consider is to play with a group of your friends and that's awesome, right? That's what kind of is a really fun way to play the game. It's the way I do actually play um, as well, both online and in person. But the solo game is a different kind of game. It's a different way of approaching the same rule system, the same type of fantasy or whatever you're playing, but from a different angle and from a different perspective. The way I'm doing it is you're doing it a little more story-ish in a lot of areas. I'm doing it almost very board gamey. although it's funny how... <laughs> as that goes, you know, uh, the story is building even if I'm not trying to do it, which is which is awesome, right? It actually, for me, makes me think of this is how it happened, right? People were playing these war games and they were like, no, but I'm general whatever. And, you know, and you could see it. You can literally see the hobby being formed when you do it the way I'm doing it. And I think solo brings you closer to that because it brings you to the raw kind of experience of playing the game without the hanging out with your friends part, which is a whole other level, an amazing level, but a whole other level. Personally, like, so for instance, another way that people play is play by post. And that's something I've dabbled in a little bit and I haven't had success with, but I want to, because again, it's another way to explore the game. It's another way to get deeper into the hobby. As far as you were talking about how much work it is, you know, on some level, (laughs) I I overwhelm myself a little bit because I record as I'm playing. So my editing is a little bit more involved. I got to listen back to it to make sure that I, you know, if if I do get, you know, mush mouth, I just, I can't just like stop and then start again. I have to just keep going and then I go back and cut it out. So I do have to watch the whole thing again, which is... (laughs) Which is both fun and uh, it's funny because when I watch the game back, it's actually exciting because you kind of forget some of the stuff that happened. You know, people gather around the next day and talk about the D&D game they played in. That's kind of what it is. I'm watching it and I'm just like, oh man, yes, the, God, those guys were terrible there. So by recording it, it adds that. But it, it does add a little bit more work on my end. And I'm also running, like you are, a whole kind of world in a way. So I have multiple groups going out at different times and I have a calendar. So, But again, that stuff is fun. I think that's part of the 
idea, right? Is like we think about, depending on how you approach the game, well, this is going really long. Depending on how you approach the game, you might say, well, prep or building maps or, you know, tracking encumbrance or combat, whatever, any part of the game, right? Especially in this case, preparation or post-game notes and that kind of stuff, the paperwork, if you will. Some people don't like that, you know, and they don't think that is the, quote, fun part of the game. So for them, adding more of that (laughs) and less of the face-to-face would seem like, you know, I'm air quoting here, work. But if you enjoy that part of it, then it's not really work for you. Like I enjoy, like you were talking about creating different rules and stuff. I love that. I love sitting down and going, how would I solve this problem and creating a rule for it. And on some level, some people that would be work because they just want to do it on the fly. They don't want, they want to experience the time with their friends. But for me, that is another form of play. And I think that that's one of the great things about these games is the various ways in which we can engage with them. So, yeah, I thought your answers were really great, and I, you're about to talk about uh, the video that you watched, so I'm going to listen to that part and perhaps call in again uh, if I can, and I will talk to you soon. Keep up the good work. Thank you for calling in, Daniel. Uh, I thought that was very well put, especially the parts about how some of it connects back to the roots of the hobby. I think that is very true, especially for me, you know, where I'm, again, I, like I said, I'm approaching it more from the the wargaming side. And it's funny that I'm communicating a lot of what's going on in the campaign through stories when my personal concept of playing through the game is a lot more statistically, mechanically oriented. It's, it's just strange. That's the way my brain processes it to, to communicate it with other people. And I do think it is worth pointing out that if there is a more work part of solo wargaming versus uh, gaming with a group that it is figuring out ways to to keep yourself honest uh, to to you know let the dice go because things like interparty relationships or decisions made within the party, in a group that's going to be the players negotiating with each other, bouncing suggestions off each other, you know, pushing for one action over another, one direction over another. And you don't have that in solo play. And that's something you have to, to figure out. Uh, And usually it's, you're going to do it some way mechanically where the dice can give it a, give it a, you know, sort of, I don't want to say random element, but just an, a measure of uncertainty for yourself where you are discovering something as the game goes. Because, again, this, that discovery is players in a campaign can discover things, the GM notices it, and when you're in a solo campaign where you're both, then, you know, what do you know, what do you not know? And that's why I spend a lot of time thinking about how does this fit in with what the world has established and then using the dice and using the tables in the monster manual and using the various tables in the Dungeon Master's Guide to help establish what that world is beyond just, you know, I, I can put some intentions on it and I can put some things in that world, but how do those things interact and how does that all play out? So that's really the only aspect that I guess would be more work, 
But then again, the time spent talking to the other players, negotiating with them, coming up with ideas, trying to come up with a plan that makes sense to everybody, that's a that's work too. It's it's shared out, but will it take more time? Will it take less time? Will it take more overall effort? Will it take less overall effort? I don't know. But I I think it kind of washes out in the end. And it, it is it is a different different way to role play and play by post. Yes, I, I've seen some of those and that's pretty interesting because you know, depending on the system you're playing with, you're not going to go through and roll all the dice rolls on a play by post where people are present at different times and, you know, not interacting in real time. So that's, you know, a, a different rhythm and a different form of, of doing things as well, even though in the minds of participants, whether it's a group at a table or a group online or a group playing by post or a solo gamer, you may ostensibly be using the same rule set to start off with. So, you know, it's it's interesting to see the different perspectives and and to and to to see how that fits with your style of gaming. So very interesting. I think there's probably more to say on this subject from people who have been doing the solo thing longer than I have and I hope if anybody has and is listening, they'll call in. But thank you for calling in, Daniel. But you're you're not done. You actually do call back. Hey Pink Phantom, Daniel calling back from the car. Listen to the rest of the episode. Yeah, I'll have to check out that video. Obviously, I can't watch a video while I'm driving. I, I think I saw it pop up and, and I've definitely been impressed by a lot of things on that channel. So very cool. I knew they were designing a game. And I definitely like this idea, right? It, almost in the way that now we're seeing more and more common in adventures where they'll list, um, for lack of a better word, trigger points. Like they might say, horror, you know, human sacrifice, uh, whatever, you know, whatever might be something that might somebody might not want in their game, right? So they list that up front. You could do that with your game system, right? Be like heroic fantasy, uh, mass combat, uh, detailed travel system, right? And, and that way people, when they look at the system, they can go, oh, right away, I know if this seems like something that might work for me. Uh, so yeah, I love, I love that idea, really. Huh. I'll probably incorporate it now that you said it. <laughs> um, the other thing is I listened to the actual play. Really cool. Man, it makes me want to delve into that Wilderness Survival book because right now I'm going to have to start adding more and more. You know, I'm using Outdoor Survival and it's really cool because they're traveling around on the map and I have obviously uh, water and supply and stuff like that. But I feel like weather events are really useful and cool. And that seems to mechanize it in a fun way for, especially for a solo campaign. Because kind of going back to what the discussion before with, with from based on Hobbs call, you know, I would deal with a tornado on the fly, <laughs> you know, if I was running for my table. But when you're running solo, you really do want those rules, right? Because you want to make sure that you're doing it, you need a mechanism, right? So you don't feel like you're favoring or oftentimes in my case, <laughs> not favoring uh, the players because I don't want to like cheat for myself for like a better word. So yeah, I, I love that. I'll have to look at that. I have it somewhere. I bought the PDF from drive-thru. So maybe I'll, I'll take a peek at it. It seemed a little dense for me. So I got it and I was like, uh, maybe not for me right now. I'll put it on the shelf, but maybe I'll take a look at it. I know also Dolmenwood has some stuff 
they're doing a Kickstarter for that now, but I have the old Wormskin magazines. That has some wilderness-like weather and stuff, too, I think. I'll have to look at that and see what I got. Anyways, great episode. Talk to you soon. All right. Thank you, Daniel. Some more good insights there. I I do think that's a good good you know notion to, to ha- having the game, having some keywords or whatever that can become you know, kind of universal, that kind of descriptive, so people know what, you know, like you pick up the back of the, a book, you pick up a book and you want to read it, you end up reading the book jacket or the back of the book of a paperback, and it gives you an idea of maybe whether you'd like to, to buy that book and read it. And uh, 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 board game award games do something similar. There's Most of them have a little little chart on the back that say, you know, that rate it as far as solitaire suitability and complexity so that you get a notion of what kind. And, you know, again, a brief description of, of what the game is trying to represent. So you get a good idea just from looking at the box. Yeah, this is a game I might want to play. So I think having something like that uh, for role-playing games would be be an interesting idea, a good idea. And as far as the... Uh, Wilderness Survival Guide, it it is, it does have a lot in it. Uh, there's some pretty good, but it has it has a lot of like subsystems. There's different weather subsystems and and subsystems for obtaining food that I've been using, fishing and hunting and and foraging and things like that. And it relates to the proficiencies, of course. There's profi- the, the proficiencies that it lists, and uh, you know if you do delve into it. I would advise going to the the end of the book because there's like an appendix and a collection of charts at the end that really collects a lot of those different subsystems together. And then, you know, if if you like that, then you can go back and look at kind of the related chapters. But that's that that would be a good place to start, I think, for you because I know you like to to add a little different different systems and subsystems to rules and and procedures that you're already using. So I think you would find it useful. I absolutely suggest it. Thank you again for calling in. And uh, now we're going to get to uh, Jason and then to Rich. Well, we're going to do Rich and then Jason. (laughs) Hey, Phantom. This is Rich. I was just wondering why you enumerated a D6 to figure out what the uh, orcs were going to do to the characters, how they would react instead of just using your reaction role. That's my usual go-to when I'm trying to figure out who these orcs are, and it usually adds to the story once I get that reaction role. Thanks for the continuing story. Take care. Thank you for the call, Rich, and thank you for the question. Uh, the, 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 re- the reason I rolled, came up with a sort of a D6 to figure out who the orcs were, was I needed to know how much more I needed to know about the orcs. Because if it's the the remnants of the previous group then that's going to affect whether or not I need to roll up how many there are because if if it's the if it's the same group if it's the remnants of that group they encountered before then I just have to look at how many survivors there were and then that that will indicate kind of the the scope of what they're facing versus if it's them returning with reinforcements or a new group then I need to go back to the monster manual and roll on the different tables. And that's how it ended up rolling that they were in layer here, are the quotation marks 
in that it was, you know, a full band of orcs, including, you know, women orcs and children orcs and things, things of that nature. And uh, there were some ogres traveling with them. And that all came from rolling on the, the monster manual entry for orcs, which if it was just the previous group, I wouldn't have to do. That was the main reason. And then, you know, if it was a new group, especially, then I would, you know, roll on a reaction table to see how they kind of interacted with the PCs. Whereas if it was the previous group, they're, they're going to be pretty hostile to them. Uh, they may be also a little scared of them, but they're going to be a little hostile to them. And if it's that group with reinforcements, they're probably even more likely to be hostile to them. So that would affect a reaction role and their reaction in general. So that's why I, I just came up with the D6, because anytime I need to come up with something on the fly that there doesn't seem to be a specific mechanic for, I start looking at what are the possibilities and does this work better just assigning numbers on a D6 or rolling a 2D6 or something like that. So thank you for the question. And thank you for the call. And thank you for listening. Thank you for including a link to Coville's video there. I don't normally watch him because I don't really play 5e, so I don't have a reason to. And he's a little tedious for me, but, and I'm sure I'm tedious for a lot of people. But that said, you're right. That was a very focused and well-explained idea of the goal of that game and the purpose they've designed that game and the design parameters of the game and what they expect. You know, I was going to call in with, with another game that I think did a decent job, but it's not nearly as good as Coville's. But I, I will read you what Night of the Ninja does. So Night of the Ninja is a 1986 Canadian game about, well, playing ninjas in the modern day. It, and it does it in one sentence. It, and it's in, the, it's in one of the prefaces here. The result is the concept of the mercenary ninja in the 1980s working for anyone, taking any job. And and that's the concept of the game, is that your mercenary ninjas working for the people. So, which, you know, I think is interesting. We've had a lot of fun playing this game. Um, hopefully I'll garner some interest in this game. But you're right. Coville does a great job there. And I don't know how necessary that is because I think if your rules are very focused, if you're doing like a Blade of the Dark game or a Monster of the Week kind of game, yeah, with well, Monster of the Week, a Powered by the Apocalypse style game, then or Blades in the Dark style game, then I think with those kind of games, because they're much more focused, you know, for example, Powered by the Apocalypse, you're going to have playbooks, which are going to limit your character choices and things like that. Then having that super narrow focus is important. But I think with other games, it's not as important. I think that kind of focus is very important in Session Zero for your campaign. But, like, for AD&D, you can run the game he's talking about to some – now, we've talked about treasure for IP, right? So, gold for IP. But, realistically, you could do the game he's he's talking about there in AD&D. Yes, they're going to collect gold for XP, or you're going to house rule how they get treasure – but you could definitely use the AD&D rules to run a game like that. Um, and you could run the AD&D rules to run murder hobos, or you can use AD&D rules to run whatever, right? So I, I think some games are open enough you could you don't have to focus it down in the game, right, for the system. You know, but 
others because they're designed like Powered by the Apocalypse, I think you do have to focus it down. So I think it's interesting. Um, but I 100% think before any campaign is started, during that session zero, it's very useful for the group to come together. And even before session zero, right, when you're initially deciding and talking about getting together to play a game, I think having that kind of focus is really important. And I Hey, Jason, one last time. Sorry I'm being so verbose. Feel free to just sum up my messages. You don't have to play them. You can just say, Jason called in to say this. But I did think of – anyway, I, I think what Coville did and the way he broke it down was great, and I do think that it would help people with their campaigns if they would do that before they started playing and even before they started planning their campaign as far as what rule system to use and all that kind of thing. Because I've definitely been in games where different players have come in with different concept, concepts. Like I was in a game, Eric Salzweedel of Omega 3D Chicken Coop ran uh, Solar Blades and Cosmic Spells, and he was thinking, I'm going to run Guardians of the Galaxy or, you know, this a little bit darker kind of thing. And we and, and the players were thinking, we're going to play Futurama. And because of the way we played and, and used our characters, it ended up being Futurama which was a lot of fun, but it wasn't quite what the GM was hoping to run. So I, I think he, he just accepted it and, and gave into it and embraced it. But, you know, that disconnect could have maybe been avoided if we had that discussion ahead of time. So I, I just wanted to say that. And that, yeah, I, I do think it's interesting. I would be curious on your thoughts on is that kind of focus more necessary for some game systems like you said, like Powered by the Apocalypse or Blades in the Dark, then other game systems like, say, Dungeons and Dragons or, you know, whatever else, right? Um, but are some systems more applicable to different genre styles than others? So talk to you later. Thank you for your calls there, Jason. <clears throat> As you can hear, I did play them. <laughs> uh, I agree. Coville can be uh, pretty ver verbose sometimes. I think uh, I think that that particular video was on their second channel, which I think is more of their here's what we're working on style channel. So I think that's why that particular video was on that channel. Uh, I think, you know, it, it really depends on the game. I think the, you know, I think a lot of why they chose to do it that way was game development. So they would have a common language. So and he explained that in the video where, you know, we're, so that way when we say, this is meeting the, this item or this this structure that we want within this game. Just a way to kind of, you know, define other than we're making an RPG or we're making a fantasy RPG uh, more specifically, so they can so they can know what they're trying to achieve as a development group, and then that would enable them later, of course, to better described to potential customers and and players what what type of game system they can expect i think the thing about uh d and d you know you can do different things with d and d it, it's funny because d and d was the the rules were kind of the very end a lot of these these games and you talked about some of them like blades in the dark and monster of the week. I think they started as a concept and then they worked on the rules to become the game. Whereas with OD and D and AD and D and D and D 
the 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 game existed first. It was a bunch of people doing a bunch of different things, you know, Dave Arneson's group and Gary Gygax's group, and then the two of them collaborating and and comparing notes about what each group was doing and taking notes of we were doing this and we were we did things this way. And so the game existed and it had been played and played. And then they said, can we make a rule set to do this? And you see that, especially you know, since I've been playing AD&D and reading the, the Dungeon Master's Guide that Gary wrote, that it, a lot of the, the when he's just ta- kind of talking to the Dungeon Master or potential Dungeon Master that's reading the book, He's talking about campaigns and trying to 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 communicate the concepts of what they had been doing and how to to create a campaign like that versus here's the rules of the game. Here's how you go through it. Here's some tips and tricks and here's the way the mechanics work together. I don't think he necessarily thought of it as mechanics. He just said, well, this is what we're doing, so we're going to write it down. And I think that's different from more more modern game development, whether it's you know the big guys like AD and like D and D and Pathfinder, or you know the different little indies. Is they have kind of a concept, they have an idea, they're inspired by an anime or TV show or book series or a common combination of these things, and they're trying to to focus in on a specific. This is what this is. And that game that you mentioned it is a good example. They're trying to, you know, it's you're trying to play a ninja movie is what you're trying to play. You're trying to play one of those one of those ninja movies from like the nineteen seventies and eighties that that people enjoyed. And you're trying to do things along that along that line, along that nature. So I think it is useful for game development and it is very useful, of course to focusing a a campaign at the beginning of a campaign because it's all about where do we want to go from here? Whether that's where do we want to go from here to create a game or where do we want to go from here to take this rule set and our expectations and have a great campaign. So so it's a it's a way of focusing, it's a way of narrowing out, okay, we don't want these things and you know, when you read about different tools that people use in a session zero, there's stuff like that where somebody says, I want this in there. I don't want this in there. There's some structures that people can use for that. And, and I can't think of any specifics off the top of my head. I'm sure I have some stuff on the computer and in, in the library here that, that are exactly those things that I just, I'm not organized enough to just grab, grab it and say, yep, this is it. But it's a matter of focus. It's, and that's what you said, and you probably said it more succinctly than what I just did. But it's a matter of focus, and it's it's a tool for them to create a game, and it's a tool for players and game masters to create a great experience for everybody to have. So that, that's my my two cents on it. It was a great question from you, and you know, great calls. I appreciate it. And now, more from my solo AD&D RPG campaign, Tales of the Dragon Slayers. In this podcast, I'm covering event, a couple of events that happened over the course of about three days in campaign 
to the to the party. First, the small group that had been they had taken another load of treasure from the cave to the keep where they're stashing it. On the return journey, they have a random encounter that occurs at night. These are both night encounters that will occur. And then a little later, I will cover the results of another encounter that they have when they return to the cave. So this happens over the course of about three days. I'm going to have the first encounter with the travel party, and then I'll have a brief setup for what's going to be the second encounter. The party has rolled a night encounter, and on the table it's rolled up some wolves, a dozen wolves. It's also rolled up those wolves as being in lair. So I'm interpreting this to mean that the party has camped near the wolves' den where their cubs are, and the wolves are returning after spending some time hunting. So since this is a night encounter, it's going to be during the one of the first two watches. Uh, the way I've reasoned out that the watches would work best is that Sir Gus having the most extensive armor to take on and off would probably take the first watch followed by Quinn then the two valets would take a watch and then finally Bernie since he needs his rest as a spellcaster would take the last watch of the evening so this so this encounter is going to either take place with either Gus or Quinn on guard so let's see who that is one through three on six side dice will be Gus, and a four through six will be Quinn. And we get a two, so it's going to be Gus. So Gus will be armored up. The others will have time to pick up their shields if they are able to wake up, if they are not surprised. Now, since the wolves aren't expecting the party, and the party's not expecting the wolves, there's a chance that either could be surprised. On a, we're going to use the standard one to two on a D6 for surprise for each side. So first, do the wolves surprise the party? They're all six. They do not. Do the does the party surprise the wolves? They roll a two, so they do surprise the wolves. So the wolves are the wolves are surprised. The party is not. The difference is six to two. The party will get four surprise rounds. So Gus is able to kind of rouse everybody and get them up and get them on attack. I'm going to rule that it takes a round for him to sort of rouse everybody, so that will be one of their surprise rounds. Another thing we need to consider is once the party has settled down and quieted down, has Gus by some chance detected the cubs? Are they make, Have they made some kind of a sound, and he knows they're there, and so when he sees the wolves, he'll know that they're there to protect their, their lair. That will give him some strategic opportunities to maybe try to lure the wolves to attack him while he's armored versus his unarmored companions. So I'm going to say on a one, one on a six, he detected the cubs, so he knows kind of where the, the den is. And he rolls a five, so he does not know. The wolves are a two-hit die creature. I rolled up that they have 11 hit points each. They have one attack, which does five, two to five points of damage. Uh, they will only be able to hit Gus in his armor from the front with a 20. From the back, since his armor class is only 1, because it negates his shield bonus as dexterity bonus, they will be able to hit him on a 15 or better. For the other party members, uh, Quinn and the two valets, 
they will have a shield. They have an armor class 9 from the front, 10 from the back. The wolves will be able to hit them on a on a 7 from the front and from a 6 on the back. Bernie, with his very high dexterity and a magical shield, he is a, he's still at armor class 0 from the front, so they will only be able to hit him on a, a 4 from the front, but from the back, they will be able to hit him from a 6. And since there are multiple wolves, it's going to depend on how things shake out with the wolves. So let's get into it with the party's first surprise round. And by that, I mean the second surprise round, the first round in which they will be taking any kind of offensive action. Uh, Gus, with his longsword, he's going to try to get into the midst of them to try to attract their attention since he's fully armored. Uh, he will need They are armor class 7. He will need a 13 to hit them. He has a plus 4 with his strength bonus as well as he has a bonus from a magical sword he's carrying. And he rolls a 20. So 1d8 damage plus 7 for his strength bonus and the magical sword. And with a 4, he kills one of the wolves outright. So now we'll go to Bernie. Bernie is going to use his uh, magic missile spell that he has left essentially from the previous day. So that is an automatic hit of 2 to 5 points of damage. And he rolls a 3, so he gets 4 points of damage on one of the wolves. Uh, Quinn, for his part, since they had a chance to take the, the wolves by surprise, he's going to forego the shield and grab his bow. And that way he can get a couple of shots, shots off before they close the distance on him, hopefully. So he needs a 14 to hit. And with a one, he misses. Uh, the valets have swords. They're going to kind of stay back and try to get or try to move in kind of close in with uh, Gus so that they can't be as easily flanked or, or be gotten behind and get a shot in. And uh, so they also need 14s to hit. And we have a three. And we have a 12, so two two misses there. And then the second shot from Quinn with his bow, uh, he rolls a 9, so he also misses. So that's the first round. Second round of, third, third surprise round, their second round of attacks. Sir Gus, again, needing a 13 to hit with a plus 4 to the roll. He rolls a 19. 1d8 plus 7. He rolls an 8. He kills another wolf. Bernie now draws his sword and wades into the fray. And he roll, He needs a 13 to hit as well. He has a plus 4. He rolls a 14. He has a plus 4 on damage as well. He rolls an 8. So he manages to kill a wolf. Then we get Quinn with a bow shot. 
He rolls a seven and misses. And the valets, 19, that's a hit. 1d8, rolls a two. The wounds, he, he wounds, I'm going to say he wounds the wolf that Bernie previously hit with his magic missile. The other valet rolls an eight and misses. And then Quinn's second bow shot is a 15. So he hits. He only does 1d6 on the bow. But he rolls a five. So that wounds another wolf. All right. Fourth surprise round. Third round of attacks for the party. Sir Gus with a 15. He hits again. And with a seven, he kills another wolf. Bernie with a long sword. He oop, that's wrong die. Throws a four and misses. Sven with the bow. I mean Quinn with the bow. He rolls a four and misses. The valets roll a nine and a fifteen, so that's one more hit. And that's eight points of damage. And then since Bernie has a double specialization in longsword, and this is his second round swinging the longsword, he gets a second roll. This time he does get a hit with an 18. And he rolls three, point, three plus his four. That gives him seven points of damage on a wolf. And then finally, Quinn's second bow shot. He rolls a 13, just missing. All right, so that's it for the surprise rounds. There are one, two, three, four, five. No, I'm sorry, four dead wolves and four wounded wolves and four wolves that are full. So now we're going to roll for initiative. The wolves roll a one. The party rolls a five. Party gets to go again. Sir Gus. And he rolls a seven. So that's his first miss. Bernie rolls an 11. So he gets a hit. And with a roll of a four, he kills the wolf he was in front of. The one that he already wounded. Finn, I mean, Quinn is going to take another shot with his bow and gets hit with a 16. He gets a hit. And only one point of damage, further wounding that wolf he was targeting. All right, and then the two valets go one hit for six points of damage. And the second ballet rolls a 16 for two points of damage. And then the second bow shot for Quinn. A 17. And with a 3, he further wounds the wolf he was targeting. 
Now the wolves get to go. So the, let's see. Uh, there's one, two. They're manned up pretty good. I want to say that since let's see. Well, we'll do the wolves that are that are manned up with people, and then we'll see what the remaining wolves do. All right, the wolf in front of Gus. That's a miss. That's a six. The wolf in front of Bernie. He needs a five to hit him. A four. I mean, I'm sorry, a 16. Rolls an eight. Wolf in front of one valet. Only needs a seven. Rolls a nine. That's a hit. That's going to be for two points of damage. Against the other valet, an 18. That will be for three points of damage. And then finally, a wolf charges at Quinn, but only rolls a five. So that's four of the wolves. There's four others left. No, there's that's five of the wolves. There's three others left. So we're going to do a die roll to see who they go after. One is Gus, two is Bernie, three and four are the two valets, and five is Quinn. No, six we re-roll. A two, that's Bernie. Doubling up on Bernie. Rolls a 15, that will be a hit. For four points of damage on Bernie. Next wolf, we'll go with, they're going after Sir Gus, and rolls a 20 for five points of damage. And then the remaining wolf will go for Quinn, and rolls a 20. For three points of damage. And Quinn only had four hit points to, to uh, start with. So Quinn had four. The two valets had six. Bernie had ten. Gus had nine. Uh, Gus is down to four. Bernie to six. One of the valets is down to four. One to three. And Quinn is down to one. So this round could be really bad for the party. All right. Initiative. The Wolves roll a two. The party rolls a three. So Sir Gus rolls a 14. That's a hit. And with a three, that is not quite enough to kill a wolf. So we got one hit point left. Bernie rolls a 14, gets a hit. That is three plus four. The wolf in front of him was healthy, so actually I gave the wolves one more attack than they should have, but okay. All right, so he does end up doing seven points of damage. All right, Quinn is going after Zolk. 
resort to his longsword. He still needs a 14 to hit. And he gets a 14. 1d8. And he gets a 3. And that's enough to kill the wolf. Now the valets, they need 14s. 11 is a miss. 15 is a hit. With an 8, that's another wolf. So we're down to 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 wolves. And Bernie gets a second swing this round with his sword. But he rolls a two and misses. So now the wolves get to go. Wolf against Sir Gus. Rolls an 11 and misses. Wolf against Bernie. Rolls a five and misses. Wolf against one of the valets. Rolls a 20 and hits. This could be a death depending on what this die roll is. It's a 1. It's plus 1. That will just reduce that valet down. Wolf against the other valet. That's a 7. That's exactly what he needed to hit. And with a 4, that valet is down. And then the last remaining wolf will let's see. Is this the one that was double doubling up on this is the one that was doubling up on Bernie, so he rolled a ten, so he missed. Alright, back to initiative. The wolves roll a five. The party rolls a six. Sir Gus. He rolls a 17. That wolf only had one hit point left. So that wolf is dead. Bernie. Rolls a 10 and misses. The valets. The valet that's still standing. Rolls a 7 and misses. Quinn moves up. And rolls a 2 and misses. So now the <clears throat> wolves get to go against Gus. That's a 14. That's a miss. Against Bernie. That's a 12. That's a miss. Against the valet. That's a 4. That's a miss. And against Quinn. That's a 4. That's a miss. All right, next round, the wolves roll a three. The party rolls a six again. All right, so Sir Gus rolls a 14, so that's a hit. And four and seven, that kills another wolf. 
and we're down to one, two, three wolves. Bernie rolls a 14. That's just enough to hit, I believe. Well, no, that's higher than he needed. He needed that just on the roll. All right, so there's the D8. There's the D8. And he rolls a 7. That was actually unnecessary because his damage bonus would have killed that wolf anyway. The valet rolls a 15. That's a hit. That's four points of damage. That wolf only had one point of damage left, so that wolf is gone. And now Quinn is on the last wolf. He rolls a 16. It's five points of damage. That wolf is still standing. Bernie has his second roll with his sword for this round. He rolls an 18. And with two, that's enough to kill that wolf. So the wolves are down. And the ballet is down. And he would be at minus two at this point. But Sir Gus can heal him with his hands on. So the party barely survived. Uh, Gus, one of the valets was down. Gus got him back up. Uh, one of the valets and Quinn were down to one hit point each. Gus was down to four hit points. Uh, Bernie was the only one that could take a full hit and still be standing. He had six hit points. Uh, so they need to jiggity on home as soon as they can and and heal up. That's for sure. Wow. So I'm also going to rule that during the battle, there be, of course, howling of the wolves and stuff. And that the cubs probably would have responded, so they will find the cubs. And since Edgar, the druid, would probably not want them to just leave the cubs to die. And also, this and this is sort of a metagaming move, the, the description of the monster manual says wolf cubs can be raised to, to be trained as, you know, essentially like acting like guard dogs. So we're gonna we're gonna have the party take the cubs with them. So they're going to have seven wolf cubs that they can uh, do a little caring for and and raising and uh, help them kind of build build their party a little more. I think that's an appropriate appropriate decision. What do you think? <laughs> After surviving the encounter with the wolves, the travel party returns to the cave a couple of days later. And the very next night, most of the group is awakened from their slumber by their watch, telling them that something is going on. There's, they hear loud noises. They hear some thrashing through some of the vegetation that's around the cave. And then four hill giants arrive. Uh, when I rolled up the reaction for these giants, I rolled them as, rolled as vaguely hostile, leaning toward hostile. And I reasoned this out to be that these giants were out. They were out hunting for food. They were out foraging. And they couldn't find what they needed. And so then they caught, you know, the sound or the whiff of campfire and the party's horses. So they showed up demanding horses to be fed. And the party tried to reason with them that maybe they could go find some game to feed the hill giants rather than the hill giants feeding on the party 
hitting on the horses. And I rolled a reaction for the Hill Giants, and they were wary but willing to go along with this. And they gave the party just a limited amount of time. I figured around an hour or two to collect enough food to feed them, and they would be on their way. Or they were going to eat something in the camp. And, you know, there was that that very real threat of four hill giants versus this, at this point, kind of beat up, a little undermanned with Katya off training party of still first level adventurers. And so that's where we're gonna gonna pick up here. The party needs to find a way to feed four hungry hill giants, or there's gonna be trouble. So I'm going to be using the hunting rules from the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Wilderness Survival Guide. So the way this works is based on the time of year, a singular hunter will have a 40% chance in these hills of finding some sort of game to hunt. If they find them, they'll roll a d6 to find out the type, the size of the, the size of the creature, and the number they could potentially ki- kill before, say, the herd gets spooked and runs off. And the way you do this is with a d6. Once you find those creatures, you'll start rolling a d10. As long as the roll on the d10 is over the roll you had on the d6, you will be hitting creatures. A small creature gets killed with one hit, a medium creature with two, a large creature with four. Unless you have the hunting proficiency, in which case, if you make a successful proficiency check, you can kill a medium-sized creature with one hit and a large creature with two two hits. But you won't know that until you, you get to that moment. This being at night, only Bernie and Sven with Improvision have an opportunity to go hunting. They will go separately because hunting in groups reduces your chances. They'll go in basically opposite directions. Bernie does have the hunting proficiency. Sven is going to be somewhat handicapped because his the only weapon he has proficiency in for, for range is javelin, and he only has five javelins. So that's going to limit his opportunities per encounter. Uh, and an encounter it is considered to, t- to take place during four turns or 40 minutes of hunting. Now, of course, the hill giants are not going to be patient forever, so I'm going to give them a base of two hours before the hill giants start rampaging, although if they have some success early, they may be able to extend that. So we're going to start off by rolling for the first 40 minutes. Did either of them encounter any creatures? So here we go with Sven, and he does, and Bernie, and he also does. So Sven rolled a 21, and Bernie rolled a 1. So now we go to figure out what type of creatures they're going to run into. Rolling a d6 for Sven. He has encountered 1d6 medium-sized creatures. So we're going to roll the d6 again and see how many of those creatures there are that he could potentially get. He could potentially get two, but he's going to need four hits to do it, and he's going to need to roll four or above on a d10 in order to get those hits. Excuse me, he's going to have to roll above a four on a d10. So he's 50-50 chance 
And if he fails a roll, that means that they escape. So here we go. The first D10 roll is a six. And the second D10 roll is a nine. Third D10 roll is a five. And the fourth is a seven. So he successfully kills two, say, small deer. So now let's go see what Bernie gets. Bernie, on his roll for the type of creature that he finds, is going to be a three. So that is what potentially one D10 medium-sized creatures. So let's see what kind of luck he has. And he rolls a nine. So there's nine creatures he can potentially kill in this herd before the rest of them get away. He has to roll three or better on his D10. But if he successfully makes his proficiency check, he will kill one for every hit he gets and not need two to hit. So he's going to be rolling a D20. He's rolling against his wisdom score minus one, which will be 13. And the roll is, and with a nine, he is successful. So every hit will kill a creature up to nine creatures because he has enough arrows that he could take all of these out. So here we go. Rolling on D10. A six, that's one. An eight, that's two. Another eight, that's three. Ooh, a one. That's unfortunate. The rest of them have escaped. So Bernie and Sven haul their catches back, and the hill giants look at them and divide them up and say, this is good, but we need more. So they go back out. So the next 40, we're going to roll. The next 44 turns, 40 minutes, we're going to roll, and we need a 40 or less on the on the D percentile. And Sven gets a 28, and Bernie gets a 92. Bernie is not successful this time around. So Sven is going to roll a 2. He runs across 1D6 small creatures. So he will now be attempting to roll above a two, and he's going to get five shots because he still just has his five javelins. A three, Ooh. a seven, a six, a five, and a one. He gets four. That's the most that he can get, and that's essentially equal to a two medium-sized creatures or one large creature in terms of what they're trying to get to satisfy the appetites of these hill giants. So now the third set of time spent hunting for Sven. He rolls 10%. He's successful. And Bernie rolls right at 40%, so he is also successful. So Sven is going to be fined 2d6 small creatures. So 2d6 small creatures, a 3 and a 3, 6 small creatures. So he rolled a 1, so if he rolls anything but a 1 on d10, they will be hit. So here's his 5 javelins, an 8, a 9, a 5, a 0, well that's a 10, and a 1. So he misses one and the rest escape. So he gets four more small creatures on the board for the party. So now let's see what Bernie can do. 
he gets a six, which is going to make it hard to get a hit, but these are size large creatures. So now we're going to do another proficiency check. Rolling against a 13, wanting a 13 or less, and he rolls a six. So he will take two hits to knock down one of these large creatures. So on his d10, he rolls a seven. He rolls a 10. That's one large creature down. And then he rolls a three. The rest escape. So he gains a large creature. So after two hours of hunting, they have combined to kill one large creature, something like maybe an elk, five medium-sized creatures, say deer, and eight small creatures, roughly, say, rabbit size. And that will prove to be just enough game to substitute for the horses that the giants wanted the party to give them to sate their appetites. So the hill giants will be taking their leave. The opening music of this podcast is Strength of the Titans, and the closing music is Late Night Radio, both by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License. Thank you for listening to Phantom Thoughts. I would love to hear your feedback. You don't have to be part of the show. If you want to contact me and let me know, hey, these are for your eyes only. I just wanted to give you thoughts, ideas, response, and it's really for your eyes or ears only, that's absolutely fine. I'd love to hear from you either way. So just let me know when you contact me. Just, I don't want to be part of the show. There are lots of different ways you can contact me. You can send me an email at phantomthoughtspodcast at gmail.com. And that can be a regular email, or you can attach an audio file to it. You can use the message button on my podcast site on podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash phantom thoughts. You can contact me via my Google voice number, 864-209-1441. You can contact me via SpeakPipe at www.speakpipe.com slash phantom thoughts. You can contact me on Discord, The Pink Phantom. All this contact information is listed in the show notes of every episode. And thank you for those who call in. Thank you for those who don't call in. I appreciate you listening and hope you'll listen again next time. Until then, I hope you have a great day.